Welcome everyone to POV Crypto, the only podcast that both Bitcoiners and Ethereans listen to. I'm David Hoffman, here with my buddy Christian. Christian, how you doing? Doing good, doing good, man. Andrew Keys, I'm so happy we got him on the podcast. I'm so happy we got an ETH bull on so I could grill him on his ETH thesis. Uh, David, thanks for teeing this one up, man. Yeah, I was actually uh, really pleased with your questions and criticisms, Christian. Uh, usually I, I kind of just like do a facepalm, but but these were actually really, really uh, good questions. And I think Andrew really appreciated them as well. So um, this is what POV is all about, getting into the nuances, the specific details about the differences between Bitcoin and Ethereum and how that relates to the world. Uh, so very fun conversation with Andrew. Andrew is uh, the... Uh, founder of Dharma Capital, a investment fund, one of the the, the biggest investment fund uh, that focuses on Ether, but they also focus on other blockchains as well. Um, so Andrew, we got Andrew on after I released my uh, Ether is a new model for money um, uh, article, which he said he uses to uh, explain Ether to his uh, investors, which I'm very honored to have. Uh, so huge conversation about a variety of different subjects. Uh, we do our first lightning round at the end. So Andrew uh, puts out these predictions uh, at the start of every year. And so since we're coming down to the end of 2019, we go through his 2019 predictions and he gives a, a review of whether he was right, wrong or not yet. So that was pretty fun. I want to do more of that. Yeah. But before we get into the interview, let's talk a little bit about our sponsors David, do you want to tell everyone about the Haven app? Yeah, Haven app is like my new marketplace. Um, every time I want something, I'm trying to train my brain to go to the Haven app before I go to Amazon because there's always a decent chance that it's going to be there. Uh, Haven app is a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace for goods, but it's different because it's powered by crypto. So instead of Amazon knowing my bank account information, my identity and everything, Haven app is a privacy-focused app and it uses crypto to pay people. And they don't take any middleman fees, so it's entirely peer-to-peer, -peer, uh, and you don't need an email or password to sign up because you just fund your wallet with crypto, and that's what crypto enables, is trustless payments. Um, so pretty cool. Uh, go check out Haven app, download it. Uh, Haven Privacy on Twitter. Uh, if you've been thinking about buying any goods or trinkets, go check out Haven app and see if it's there. Yeah, and our next sponsor, eToro, the eToro trading platform. Uh, over 11 million users worldwide. Uh, they started in 2007 uh, just enabling people to get access to American stocks and stuff like that internationally. They quickly saw the opportunity to support Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and jumped on that in 2013. And now in 2019, eToro is coming to the USA. Uh, they're trying to bring their suite of really innovative and cool crypto trading and investing products to Americans. Um, and they're going state by state. Uh, here in California, they're fully rolled out. I know they recently rolled out in Florida, and I think they have the majority of the USA um, covered. With eToro, you can invest in crypto the way you like uh, with a lot of different smart investing products. Uh, so whether that's just dollar cost averaging into Bitcoin, like the way I like to do it, or whether that's investing in a diversified portfolio, whatever. It, whatever your preference is, it's there. Uh, you can even follow traders and mimic their trading strategy. Talk smack on their leadership boards and their, and their social trading section. Um, it's really a fun place. So go check it out. B.TC backslash eToro POV. B.TC backslash eToro POV. Check out eToro again and thank you for supporting the show. Um, 
yeah, let's just get right into Andrew Keys. I think we already gave a decent amount of background on this podcast. It was a ton of fun, so let's just go right into it. Andrew Keys, welcome to POV Crypto. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate it. Thanks for having me, guys. Andrew, so a lot of the Ethereum side of, of uh, this podcast will understand a little bit, at least, who you are and what you do. But for those that don't know, will you kind of explain uh, your sure. background and then also your role in Ethereum and how sure. you are advancing this decentralized technology? So first and foremost, I, I, I like to say that my best computer science was in college and it's been technically downhill since, but I was able to understand technical architecture enough and the problems with legacy database systems and payment systems, having worked in an investment bank and built a electronic medical records database company uh, to understand the uh, brilliance between Satoshi's white paper, uh, the Byzantine generals problem, and the, uh, the, the, the trend toward decentralization. I was lucky enough to meet a gentleman by the name of Joseph Lubin, uh, one of the co-founders of the Ethereum project at the first ever Ethereum meetup in Manhattan. With This is now over five years ago. And uh, I thought that the notion uh, that Satoshi created, where solving the double spend, where counterparty A sending counterparty B uh, trust, uh, trustlessly, permissionlessly, in a peer-to-peer fashion without an intermediary was spectacular, but it was missing what I would just call business logic. You know, if X happens, then the payment, else failure. That if then else simplified uh, was the notion of smart contracts um, that Ethereum uh, advanced on top of, of Bitcoin. Or, 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 you know, on, on, on Bitcoin shoulders. So, so I, I forever am grateful to Bitcoin. Um, and I think that Ethereum was the next generation in, in basically being able to do anything in a peer-to-peer decentralized fashion. Uh, so long story short, Joe Lubin uh, was winding down his work uh, at the Ethereum Foundation post the initial crowd sale and was winding up consensus. And I loved the notion of the decentralized World Wide Web so, so much that I actually initially volunteered to uh, work at Consensus because uh, we were in limited means. We were in uh, a room of about four of us with basically mining, <laughs> mining hardware uh, and all of the, the, the cliche aspects of a startup with printers that didn't work, et cetera. And, um, Basically, at Consensus, I built out our global business development uh, processes and structure, uh, I think, notable to Ethereum. I created the the first blockchain as a service offering uh, with Microsoft, where we put a permission version of Ethereum onto Azure to teach edu- uh, to teach institutions and 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 governments. Uh, what blockchain was in a permissioned safe context. Uh, There have been hundreds of thousands of downloads of that. So those training ground sandboxes were built in the early days. I also helped create the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, and then uh, which is now the largest open source blockchain initiative on earth. 
which is focused on creating standards uh, for Ethereum. And, 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 and standards are important. And, and the analogy that I use is when Java uh, migrated to J2EE, Java 2 Enterprise Edition, it, it, it happened because there were clean web APIs and clean database APIs. So an engineer in Mumbai, San Francisco, or Paris basically all worked from the same context. And we need these types of composable Lego blocks, identity standards, token standards, wallet standards, reputation standards, so we can use uh, these building blocks over and over and over again. Uh, whether you're a uh, music app or a poker app or an accounting app, everyone needs wallet. Everyone needs token. And we, we, we've worked on creating these standards um, to further scale the ecosystem efficiently. And then lastly, uh, I transitioned into some of the capital markets roles, which was uh, my previous experience. Uh, and, and helped create the venture arm of consensus, the token issuance arm of consensus. And uh, we were going to create an asset management arm in consensus. And we actually uh, decided um, that we uh, to do that outside of consensus. So the previous head of capital markets and I um, formed Dharma, which is Digital Asset Risk Management Advisors which is currently, by, by my understanding, I may be wrong, but I haven't heard anyone else, the largest actively managed uh, Ethereum pool in the world. So we're uh, registered with the, the CFTC and uh, we are uh, members of the National Futures Association. And basically what we do is we create quantitative systematic alpha over the benchmark of the price of Ether. Simply put, what that means is if someone were to give me 100 Ether, my goal uh, would be to keep that 100 Ether safe and then produce one more Ether a month um, by risk managing it uh, with quantitative strategies that we can get into a bit later. But uh, long story short, I've been uh, a part of the Ethereum ecosystem from inception and uh, will continue to be so. And, and I really do believe in the decentralization of our global economy. A huge, robust uh, resume of, of what you've done in the Ethereum space. So thank you for, for everything that you've done and all the wings of Ethereum that, that you have helped build out. Um, your, your investment firm, Dharma, is kind of why I reached out to you to, to get you on the podcast in the first place. I reached out to you after I released that article um, defining Ether as an asset. And so what I wanted from you, what I want to get out of you is how do uh, investors, big firm investors or high net worth investors, like how do they view Ether as an asset? Like what do they think that it is? Uh, why do they buy it? Why do they think the price is going to go up? Like, what's their justification for buying Ether? Sure. So, so first and foremost, they don't think about Ether as an asset. I would say uh, 99%, even to this date, uh, do not even know what Ether is. Uh, any, and, and you can, and, and this corroborates, if, if you've listened to any of the Coinbase custody, uh, uh, podcast lately, you know, they, they, they say the, the, the majority, the overwhelming 90% majority of their inflows for institutional custody is Bitcoin. And, and so, um, first and foremost, they don't know what it is. 
and 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 in doing so, so basically, my job is to educate, uh, and what is going on, and 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 so what what I would first where I start is basically what is a relational database, uh, and how the database and the internet grew up separately, and how today we just take for granted logging into internet service providers and uh, those are essentially middlemen that extract tremendous amounts of value for providing essentially the same things they provide identity they provide reputation so if we use you know a facebook or an uber or an airbnb it's this middleman that's providing the identity of the two counterparties their reputation you know the five stars at the end of the uber a payment rail and and they're extracting uh, tremendous amounts of value uh, for, for, for doing that and 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 basically uh, I, I introduce the notion of peer-to-peer -peer and and the first thing I do is 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 give homage to Bitcoin and 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 I pay my homage basically explaining that Bitcoin solved essentially two core problems first was the double spend if I send you value and I carbon copy that, val that value, we'd have hyperinflation versus if I sent you communication and, and carbon copy that communication, there really isn't an issue there uh, with, with that. And then I explained the Byzantine generals problem where basically we, we, we have in an adversarial environment, 51% uh, of the actors, if they're acting benevolently, uh, we can create this golden source of truth even in an adversarial environment. So, so, so what I would say is, first we explained peer-to-peer -peer value transfer, uh, which was the opening act, the gateway drug, the MySpace, if you will, which I think Bitcoin does serve uh, its purpose in doing that. But really, what, what, what? Then I, then I, I, I nudge people to think of basically. Bitcoin was the opening act that served uh, in, in educating us that Alice can send Bob value peer to peer, but Ethereum is this next generation where we can essentially do anything peer to peer. We can create derivatives, lending protocols, and, and, and essentially create these trustless agreements that could replicate the application layer of the current internet on a peer to peer basis kind of talking about um this idea of like bitcoin's the opening act eth is is the next act i find that from an investable asset perspective and from a mindshare perspective it's super freaking bullish for bitcoin that the only way to pitch eth is to introduce them to bitcoin first and i also saw this with david when he was giving a lesson at an ethereum meetup about the history of money and trying to lead into DeFi. it really turned into 45 minutes of the Bitcoin standard and then 15 minutes of DeFi. Um, and I just think from a mindshare perspective and investment perspective, that's super freaking bullish for Bitcoin. And it's really something that in my mind, if these monies are competing is bearish for Ethereum in terms of brand awareness, how people can learn about it. What do you think about that? Seeing as though this is currently how you pitch ETH. So, so for, con for I, context, that meetup yeah. was 60% baby boomers. Just yeah. FYI. <laughs> so so, so I, I think we have to crawl before running 
And I think that I will not, uh, I, I will agree with you that right now, in terms of the investment uh, universe, the, the investment universe understands Bitcoin more than Ether. Uh, and, and, and so I, I, I'm not going to debate that. Uh, that said, uh, I think that Ether is going to get abstracted lower and lower and lower. And, and basically, it will be used really through the application layer of Ethereum. And if the application layer is done properly, uh, you're not going to know that it's there. And similar to when you use Uber or Airbnb, you don't know if you're using a SQL database or, or another type of database. You don't know if you're using TCP IP, but you're, you're, you're using the application layer that resides on top of those protocols. And frankly, we're just, we're still in the first out of the first inning of this technology, but the Ethereum virtual machine is turned complete and the Bitcoin virtual machine is not. And you have a very limited set of use cases. So right now, pre-scaling uh, through POS, through, through sharding, uh, pre the, the, the production grade systems of ZK Snarks and things like Aztec and things like Nightfall, you've got a toy in both Bitcoin and Ethereum. Bitcoin, for all intents and purposes, really doesn't have to do anything else. It does serve its purpose as this digital storage of value. Uh, I, I, you know, we can get into, and, and, and I don't think it is really fruitful for this, you know, the amount of energy that's wasted in, in, in the proof of work consensus algorithm and, 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 and how that's bad for the environment, et cetera. But, but, but disagree. <laughs> totally disagree with that, but keep going, keep going. We don't, this is not what this is about. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, I think it's part of it, but, 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 but right now you'd have to be apples to apples and Ethereum is also proof of work right now. When you get to proof of stake, which you, you can see all of these next generation blockchains are trending towards, uh, that's going to be an issue, but that's going to be an issue in two years. Uh, so, so I think that what you're going to learn, you know, how you're going to be ex able to explain this is through use cases, through the concepts of DeFi, through the concepts of having large enterprises actually using Ethereum to issue things like bonds, like what, a, what Santander just did on the public Ethereum mainnet, not a permissioned intranet on the public permissionless uh, mainnet. So, so I think there's a tremendous amount of education in what can be done with Ethereum versus the, the sole use case of, of, of Bitcoin's peer-to-peer -peer transfer of value. So we were talking a little bit about this subject before we started recording. Uh, and so for me, somebody who's not, who didn't come from finance and not really familiar with Santander, I don't really, I, I've, I've heard that it, them issuing a bond on public Ethereum mainnet is, is a big deal, but I can't really put it into scale. Can you kind of help yeah. me and, and our listeners sure. scale why this is such a big deal? Sure. So, so, so what I would say, notwithstanding all of the regulatory issues around asset issuance, uh, the, the ability for thousands, millions of people to send value to a singular address and then seamlessly have a receipt of that value 
uh, whether it's through a token that signifies a stock or a token that signifies a software license, like a consumer utility token or a security token, trustlessly, permissionlessly is the future of finance. Uh, rather than having uh, you know, a, a, a handful of dudes on, on Sand Hill Road in San Francisco that are gatekeepers that, that serve as these intermediaries, the ability to do this permissionlessly is in and of itself a exponential improvement on today's capital markets. So that's first and foremost. And, and you can't do that with Bitcoin, full stop. Second, uh, having an institution that has to deal with MIFID II compliance, SOC II compliance, ECB, um, that have gone through the, the, the hurdles in order to use this next generation technology and not do it in a permissioned context like JP Morgan's fork of the Geth uh, client quorum, but do it using the public permissionless network uh, is a really big deal. And, and, it, and it's a big deal uh, similar to how in the early 90s, every bank, every accounting firm was on an intranet. It was a permissioned walled garden. And eventually everybody moved into a permissionless internet system and there are still intranets that work today so swift which handles the majority of the value flow around the world is a permissioned intranet uh and but the fact that we're seeing fortune 500s use these proofs of concepts that will eventually scale into production systems once we do have scalability transactional scalability and privacy uh, and confidentiality, and those are slightly different uh, animals, but, but for, 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 for today's purposes, we can couple them. Uh, once those technologies coalesce through kind of zero knowledge proof technology, uh, I believe you have a substrate for a global trust layer for Earth. And, and, and I think that that is, and then, and then another piece you know, about 30 days later, um, Ernst & Young, one of the largest big four consultancies, started solving that problem of privacy. So, 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 so whether you're talking about medical records data that must be kept private due to HIPAA or, or, or financial information, uh, privacy is a non-starter. So right now in today's public permission list, and this will probably be a plus for our Bitcoin friend, uh, you can't use it, full stop, uh, on Ethereum, in production, you can't use it because of privacy and confidentiality. With the advent of zero-knowledge proof technology, such as Aztec, such as Nightfall, that's being built by one of the big four consultancies, one of the largest accounting firms, 250 years old in the world, uh, it, it's, it, it, it changes the ability to actually use this substrate in production. So, and I, and I mean, you know, just another kind of history doesn't necessarily rhyme. Uh, it, it's not the same, but it can rhyme. Between Ernst & Young, one of the largest big fours, you know, one of their first open source technologies is this privacy layer. JP Morgan, 250 year old bank, 
the first time they've ever open sourced uh, technology is the creation of, of, of Quorum, which is a permissioned layer of, of Ethereum for financial institutions that does have the ability uh, or will shortly have the ability to merge into a, a public permissionless network. You're seeing kind of leaders of the legacy world uh, embrace this space and they're not building it on Bitcoin. So <laughs> I find this to be really funny. I really, really fail to see how issuing an asset like an equity is any way trustless or can be done trustlessly. And in terms of like EY, just as an example, EY is an example to me of one of the legacy institutions that is just throwing money away at blockchain without any results whatsoever. Maybe them pivoting to working on ETH is, uh, in, is, is actually positive because they're no longer throwing their money away on this like permission blockchain baloney. But they recently had head of EY blockchain, Andrew Beal. Are you familiar with him? I know Andy Beal. I don't think he's the head. Paul Brody's the head. I mean, he was at some point was at, was the head. He's no longer, I don't even know if he's still at EY, but um, I think some point in 2018, he, he, uh, I don't know if it's a rage quit or what you would call it, but he quit EY blockchain, wrote a scathing article about why private blockchain makes absolutely no sense. And that, you know, essentially said that money is kind of the, the only real signal here in the blockchain world. Um, but I guess what I'm trying to get to is, you know, I just don't, I don't really see this vision of like this consensus layer working and even plugging into regulations. Like if you're considering HIPAA and you, we need to get um, zero knowledge proof so HIPAA can be okay with it. Like, I just don't see that working. And in my mind, I actually question even identity on the blockchain, even if it's like fully confidential. Like I don't even want there to be a place with my name, my address, all my location, like this idea of like full stack identity, like that's, not, do we even want that? Like, don't we just want to be able to, uh, you know, have some sort of reputation on the internet without associating it with all of these different full stack identity aspects? I'm just like very confused with where this is going and why is it sure. even bullish for ETH? So, so, okay, so, so let's parse that question. Um, First, to, to parse identity, what I think the architecture will look like is that we will have a canonical persona. So let's say the David Hoffman persona. And that, that will have uh, sub-personas, work persona, somewhat similar to like a LinkedIn, maybe passenger persona, similar to an Uber, uh, renter of a home persona, similar to Airbnb, gamer persona, dark persona. Um, you can basically have all of those and they can be anchored to the canonical. Uh, what you're going to see with this peer-to-peer -peer world is that, uh, that you're going to need those reputational attributes after every transaction, similar to what legacy intermediary applications give. So uh, Uber gives the five stars, Air, Air, uh, Airbnb gives ratings, eBay gives ratings. So if you don't have that middleman to, uh, for that reputational attribute, you're going to need to have that peer-to-peer -peer, uh, in, in, in each, in each uh, transaction. 
So you can build a reputationally rich persona. The reason why we want it on a blockchain is if I do a thousand Uber rides and I rent my first Airbnb and I'm well behaved on my thousand Uber rides, that doesn't, that doesn't add any value to my Airbnb reputation. So basically we have these siloed walled gardens that are owned by these intermediaries that really don't contribute to us as a holistic person. Because if I did a thousand Airbnbs or a thousand Uber rides, I'm probably a pretty good person if I rent the Airbnb. And so what you're starting to get at is portable reputation. And it's, it's basically, you can, uh, we're the ones that self-sovereignly own it rather than the intermediaries. You can't take your Uber reputation and bring it with you somewhere else. Whereas in the future, it will be self-sovereign. And, 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 you know, your browser, you know, the Christian browser is going to be your wallet. It's going to be your identity. It's going to be this reputational uh, repository. And I do think that there's value in that. And why it's bullish for ETH is that for every storage, computation, transaction, there's a microtransaction uh, micro need of this digital fuel. So, so I think that the, the, the more that you have an economy that, that lives within this trust substrate, uh, there's, there's more need for the native asset. Okay, so essentially is what you're saying is that, and this is a typical Ethereum bullish case, right? That this application layer is going to have so much utility that that is what's going to drive uh, the demand for ETH. And, you know, you can talk into the staking and all that other aspects as well, but that's the general. So, thesis, so, right? those, so those are two, so, but let's get clear. Those are two different uh, value propositions. One is the usage of the asset. The other one is in order to uh, maintain a safe network, uh, you can yield. So, you know, this, this goes to kind of the triple point asset case uh, that David makes, which I, which I think is probably the best way that I've seen Ethereum explained in the market. David has, does do a good job with, uh, with the, <laughs> the visualizations, that's for sure. Um, I know that David wants to, pros, has a bunch of questions pros. for you. Um, <laughs> no, no, definitely. I think he does a great job. Um, but, uh, dude, David's my boy. Don't get me wrong. I, I'm, yeah, I'm, not, I mean, I'm not all the way hater. <laughs> so here's my question to you. Like, I mean, like, why can't they coexist? Why can't, like, I mean, do you agree that you couldn't build decentralized so i mean i would say first and foremost bitcoin is decentralized finance it, it, it like you know and 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 let's not be mean to bitcoin um because none of this would happen without bitcoin uh but you know that, that's not to say that you know windows 95 or you know atari uh didn't contribute to playstation 3 uh or or you know the the, the apple laptop as it is today uh, so, so I, I mean, I think that things uh, can evolve, but, but I mean, I, I think that Bitcoin is decentralized finance in, in the way that it can be peer-to-peer, -peer. but do you agree that you can't build these types of trustless applications on Bitcoin? So I guess let's parse that apart, right? 
First, sure. you know, Bitcoin is decentralized finance. I agree with you. Bitcoin is a decentralized monetary system. And I think what is important about Bitcoin is that it establishes the unit. It's, this is a monetary thing. And Bitcoin proves and establishes the unit of a Bitcoin and, you know, a Satoshi and whatever comes after it. Second part is, can you build these trustless things on Bitcoin? I question that you can even build these things trustlessly on Ethereum, number one. And two, what do we actually want to make trustless, right? And I, I would argue that there's very few things that can effectively compete in the market as a trustless thing and people don't even want it. But one of those things that has a screaming, gaping hole in the current socioeconomic system right now is a uncorruptible money system. So, I mean, I just see like, ETH is just too early. Like we're gonna, all this stuff is gonna happen eventually and in a way that is market but just trying to build this stuff without anyone who wants it on a monetary system that has very, I mean, very little monetary reputation or credibility. You know, David always says we're optimizing for security. ETH is gonna be this thing that, you know, is gonna have minimal viable issuance. But yeah, at the same time, when you go ask all the investors, no one thinks of something that is a hard money as ETH. Like that meme is not going through, that reputation's not there at all. I don't know, it might, it might grow. You have a lot more insights to, than I do, but I just don't buy the story altogether. I just don't buy it. So I, I think we've got a, a 10 year lifespan in Bitcoin versus a foreign change with, with Ether. And I think that that's fair that uh, the investors, you know, I, I don't even think it's a matter of not buying it. I don't think they even understand it or know what it is because Bitcoin problem. has been around. Yeah, it, it, it is a problem. But, you know, at this point, I, I think that uh, we as an Ethereum community basically showed the art of the possible. And, and I think that that worked. But now the art of the possible has to go into production and it has to coalesce with regulatory compliance aspects and that's going to be a long and winding road and 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 but there there's nothing else that's able to do what ethereum can do uh with the volume of a community building on it in the world you look at the electric capital report that that talks about the engineers you've you've got four times the core protocol engineers uh, on Ethereum than Bitcoin. Hey guys, I want to introduce you to another new sponsor of POV Crypto. That sponsor is Realty. And if you guys know, I am the chief of operations of Realty. So I am advertising for my own company. We are getting into the podcast advertising business. Basically all content in crypto is pretty much podcasts. And so it's the right place for us to be. And we're really excited to start our marketing engine and no one can give a better advertisement for Realty than me, the, the guy who works at the company. Uh, and so if you guys haven't heard, Realty is a tokenized real estate platform. We are tokenizing properties in the United States as ERC20 tokens on Ethereum. Uh, we specifically have chosen properties that produce high rental rates at low costs. Uh, so some of our properties are single family homes in Detroit and also uh, apartment homes. Uh, there's a 15 unit apartment home on there. Uh, the, the lowest price for a token is 63.75. So that's pretty cool. It really lowers the barrier for getting into real estate. 
And the cool thing about owning tokenized real estate is that we pay rental income every single day. So you don't have to wait for the first of the month to get your rental paycheck. We send you die every 24 hours uh, for what you are owed as your share of the real estate property. So go check us out on realty.co. Uh, and we're going to make this announcement here on POV Crypto first before anywhere else. The flagship property of Realty 9943 Marlowe, the first property to ever be tokenized on Ethereum, is available inside of Uniswap this coming Monday, November 4th. We're going to unlock the Uniswap exchange. There will be a decent amount of liquidity for 9943 Marlowe real tokens. Uh, so you can now buy and sell real estate properties inside Ethereum, inside Uniswap, using DeFi. Uh, it's super cool. I'm really, really excited to, to make this announcement. Uh, a number of cool things are all happening at once. First off, liquidity for real estate. One of the big problems of Ethereum is providing li liquidity for off-chain assets. And the DeFi world lets us plug right into Uniswap to get that done. So you can now buy and sell real estate properties inside of Uniswap. Uh, and it's also Uniswap's first whitelisted token. Uh, Realty is only for international customers at the moment until we get our Reg A approved, uh, which means that uh, Uniswap is integrating with security tokens. So real tokens are security tokens. Uh, and so if you wanna get whitelisted, you can go to the website and or email us at help at realty.co to get whitelisted after you do your KYC. Uh, and so it's a really interesting intersection of Uniswap slash security tokens. So the, the DeFi, CeFi hybrid, it, it's coming alive. And, and this is just the power of Ethereum, using DeFi applications to help centralized businesses provide novel products for their customers. Um, so go, go check us out at realty.co, R-E-A-L-T.co. You can follow the Twitter at Realty Platform. And if you have any questions or just wanna talk Realty, hit me up on Twitter. Uh, I'm happy to answer any questions about tokenized real estate. And now back to Andrew Keys. Common Bitcoiner uh, criticism of Ethereum is there is no product market fit yet. Uh, and it's kind of well, because what we're doing on Ethereum is we're building a new product that has never been um, presented before. And so when you gave your example of like my Uber reputation doesn't carry over to my Airbnb reputation, uh, well, Bitcoiners say like, well, that's not really a problem because like I'm not ever rejected from either platform because of my lack of reputation. But what Ethereum is trying to do is build this whole new global worldwide reputation trust system that could enable new products that use this brand new reputation system. So we're doing two new things at once. And that's kind of where we're getting into this like novel use cases. And so I, yeah. I would I kind of want to turn to what this new thing that we're building on Ethereum that is literally two new things at once, which is DeFi. And so uh, another one of the big questions I have for you, Andrew, is, is you mentioned that uh, investors are like three to five years away from investing in DeFi. Uh, yep. And so could you answer like what makes them so scared? Like why, why are they scared to get involved? So, so what, I, what I would say first and foremost is that DeFi is a regulatory compliance nightmare. Um, and, and, I'm, and I love the technology and the technology is there. Uh, we're, we're seeing it being used and, and I believe wholeheartedly that it's the future of finance. But things like being able to issue a loan in the United States you need to have a lending license in 50 states. Uh, and obviously, 
you know, the makers of the world don't have those lending licenses yet. Uh, and, 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 and being able to do that permissionlessly to not a, a, a name that has a social security number, uh, that is a regulatory compliance nightmare. Um, so I do think that there are regulatory and compliance hurdles um, that now that the kind of the art of the possible has been uh, shown and, and we've seen hundreds of millions of dollars uh, issued synthetically or, or collateralized realistically, uh, we need now, you know, the good lawyers to educate the good regulators uh, so America isn't left behind. But what's going to happen is there are going to be regulators that are going to be favorable because you've got essentially a regulatory arbitrage right now. And America won the Internet. And right now, I don't think with the type of regulatory compliance uh, news that's been coming out over the last couple of weeks, um, it's necessarily in the right place to win blockchain. But mark my words, Switzerland will do something or Hong Kong will do something. Uh, and, 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 you know, you're seeing other countries like Portugal um, that, that say that Ether to Bitcoin is, is not a, a taxable event, but Ether to US dollars or Bitcoin to US dollars or, or Euro is a taxable event. So you're going to have pressures um, for, for the, the, the regulators to learn this. The problem is there's a huge delta between the people that are building this stuff and the silver foxes that have never written uh, an inch of code uh, and having to get them up to speed. So, so I think, you know, first and foremost uh, is regulatory compliance. Um, so, so, so that's the first thing. Uh, I, and, and then institutions, they have to comply. So you're not going to get, you know, Goldman Sachs depositing uh, money to be lent at a 10% yield, uh, unfortunately. But interestingly, you're getting Coinbase to do that. So, you know, a little bit more avant-garde financial institution that is regulated, you know, has one of their arms, which is kind of siphoned off and walled garden from like the main core business, which is Coinbase Ventures, that did put in, you know, a million dollars into USDC and a million dollars into DAI that they're lending out at a 10% interest rate just to prove the art of the possible to people. And as we're going into a negative uh, interest rate environment, that yield is going to to get sought. You know, the people are going to seek that yield. So I, I would say it, that there's regulatory compliance. I think there's issues with finality. Uh, I think there's issues with privacy confidentiality that I already spoke about, uh, and 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 transactional throughput. So I think that you know one of the analogies that I always give is that you know '96 was kind of the the, the, the launch of dial-up. Uh, from 96 to 06, 85% of the dot-com, so the application layer went to zero. 2007 was the first time there was ever an Apple app. So that was 11 years after the protocol of dial-up internet really launched. What we're seeing now, because we as a species have continued to become more intelligent, is that these protocols are not yet finished. You know, scalability, privacy is not yet fully baked into Ethereum. I think it will be in 13, 14 months, but for right now, it's one one thousandth of the strength that it can be. 
but we're seeing people build apps for the protocol that's not yet finished. It's like building a car when the road's not yet finished. And to, uh, to Christian's point, many of these will fail. And by attrition, many of these will fail. You know, A, because it's too early, and B, product market fit. But mark my words, one out of a thousand will work. And that's really what happened with the oligopolies of today's internet. So we're starting to see traction. I think that Compound's successful. I think Make or Die has been successful. I think there is regulatory clarity that they have to seek. And uh, there are other supply chains that I think that are working well. But uh, we are in the first out of the first inning still. So like that being said, uh, we have all these grand visions of, of what Ethereum can do and all these different things that need to be built. Um, and William Moger's book, uh, Business Blockchain, illustrates like hundreds of great scenarios of, of what the theory, theoretically what blockchains could do, mainly what Ethereum can do. But like, has, is Ethereum just too much? Like, is it too disruptive all at once? Like, is it biting off more than it can chew? So, so, so I think that this is where you have to bifurcate uh, and really be regimented in the protocol layer versus the application layer. You know, uh, Ethereum provides a global trust settlement layer for human coordination where, and then on top of that, we can uh, create software uh, where the counterparties can both see the software and trust in the software once it's properly audited, you know, notwithstanding bugs that I think are, will also get fleshed out and I think as Ethereum's virtual machine goes to WebAssembly, which has also been a, a, a much more uh, mature virtual machine that has many more code bases that can compile into bytecode, uh, you're going to see that further reduce. Uh, but basically what we're solving is human coordination problems and, 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 the, and the need to, to basically trust some type of intermediary uh, for any type of transaction. And, and so simply put, I, I think Ethereum's fine as that substrate uh, at the protocol layer. And I think that the application layer is going to battle it out and the best is going to rise to the top similar to legacy internet. So we're gonna see use cases in any vertical, you know, from finance, insurance, healthcare, uh, supply chain, et cetera. So turning towards something less, uh, more grounded, uh, I kind of want to turn to what your view of the EF is in its role on Ethereum. Like it sure. does have an sure. influence. Like do sure. you, do you see this influence is like necessary and justified sure. or kind of do you sure. wish the EF kind of would go away? Like what's your, what's your take on the EF? So, so, so I think that anything decentralized has to start from a centralized point. Uh, there has to be, you know, it, 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 it's not like a big bang. There's got to be some type of coordination mechanism and, and then it will further decentralize. I think EF has done a great job uh, on research of scalability and privacy of the Ethereum protocol. I think it's done a poor job of shepherding business um, uh, interests. Um, ways for others to collaborate with it. And I think that it's starting to mature and starting to um, take that help. 
uh, I remember early days of EF where uh, there was another uh, executive director and uh, I was with the head of IBM, which was basically the largest open source contributor um, to the Linux Foundation and is literally, you know, uh, historically, I, I would say, one of the best technology companies in the world in the history of Earth. You, you, you go to Palo Alto and you go to the Technology Hall of Fame. It's not Google. It's not Microsoft. They're, they're kind of the last minute of a day. And, and you go to everything that IBM built from the 1940s forward, from the relational database to the social security number. Um, and, and long story short, Ethereum Foundation wasn't taking their call. And, and, and like things like that pure infuriated me because you have uh, these brilliant engineers, in some cases never had a real job, that are not used to uh, lean startup mentality or basically stand-ups and, 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 and like maturing that process. Um, so I, I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but I think that EF has to get uh, the, through e Ethereum 2.0 um, and has to deliver that. Uh, I think that uh, EF has uh, kind of adopted this new concept of uh, addition by subtraction where they're trying to empower others. Um, and I think that Aya Mayaguchi has done a good job in, in trying to harness that. I think EF is starting to mature in, in their relationships with enterprises uh, in that, that I think is evident with uh, working with uh, the Enterprise Ethereum Alliance, EEA. Um, and I do think that EF does have to continue to be kind of a benevolent shepherd uh, that, that is nonprofit, that is solely focused on scalability and privacy of the mainnet. But I think EF also has to get real on what they can and can't do. You know, the fact that they had, you know, half of the foundation working on putting on a conference, uh, you know, that's a gigantic brain drain. Uh, they, they, they shouldn't be dealing with that crap. They should have a corporate travel agent do the work. Uh, you know, like little stuff like that where I think uh, you, you could optimize so, so the builders are building, the researchers are researching. Yeah, I personally, I think that uh, EF as an institution and as a funding organization is always going to be the receiving end of, of criticism and is never going to do a good enough job. Um, it's just impossible for an organization to have that kind of responsibility and really succeed. I do kind of want to bridge this over to ETH 2.0 and how it affects kind of, you know, how ETH 2.0's future kind of affects uh, institutions investing in ETH today. Um, so would love to get your take on that. Is that something that they're even aware of? I know that there's issues with like futures that are people are talking about like CFTC futures and how E2.0 yeah. works with that. Can you talk yeah. about that kind of stuff? Okay, so, so, so we have to parse that a little bit. So I'll take the futures, the Ethereum futures product first. Cause I was saying I'm, I'm bad at asking direct questions. I, I, I yeah, no, no, no worries, no worries. It's all good. So, so first and foremost, ETH futures, Bitcoin futures, um, let's just talk about digital asset futures. Uh, CFTC register, uh, uh, regulates commodities. So if you were to take the Series 3 CFTC exam, which is the equivalent of like the Series 7 in finance um, for equities, the Series 3 is the, is, the, is the commodities one. Basically, today, it would say you've got a thousand cows. And, and you know, if, if the price of cows goes up, 
in six months, you have to create this forward pricing curve, or you would do it with oil, or you would do it with gold. First and foremost, the fact that we have regulatory clarity, the only real regulatory clarity that the digital asset space has is that Ether is not a security and Bitcoin is not a security. Everything else is still relatively gray area. Uh, the fact that we've gotten Bitcoin futures and Bitcoin led the way, good for Bitcoin, uh, and the fact that we are getting Ether futures imminently, and we've gotten that regulatory clarity last week from the chairman, what that does is having a futures creates what are called forward pricing curves, meaning that if I have a cash asset today, I can, uh, if, if I need more of that cash asset, I can figure out how much I need and transfer that risk uh, for three months from now, six months from now. And those forward pricing curves are the predecessors to exchange traded funds. And, you know, we can get very kind of crypto utopian and say, well, if this is decentralized, we don't necessarily need exchange traded funds uh, or, or these regulatory uh, approved concepts, you could not my keys, not my crypto, but I, I kind of say bullshit to that because what this does is it opens the door for Main Street to basically invest with the legacy assets that they have in their legacy accounts. IRAs, uh, you know, 401ks, you'll be able to have an ETF in Bitcoin, an ETF in Ether. You could probably imagine a Web3 ETF that has a little bit of all of them. Of, of a Bitcoin and Ether together, for example, and you can figure out like the, the percentages. So I think having futures on a regulated basis uh, in the United States, which is the largest jurisdiction in the world in terms of capital is great. That said, we already have these products in what I would call catch me if you can jurisdictions. BitMEX, uh, you know, catch me if you can in Seychelles uh, already has these types of futures products. You know, you could just say leverage in general is, is, is a derivative product in general. So uh, I think it just adds to more credence for the institutional investor to be able to deploy capital. Uh, you know, one of the biggest things that's a hurdle to both Bitcoin and Ether is the notion of custody. You typically had a QSIP that was at your custodial bank like BNY Mellon, State Street, JP Morgan. Now you've got public-private key pairings. And you know, to be honest, it takes 18 months just to get that type of infrastructure in a regulated bank uh, versus what I would say the most successful product right now in all of crypto is a regulated, egregiously priced GBTC Bitcoin trust that, they're, they're, that, I, that I think is a complete ripple, full stop. But, but what it does is it gives uh, the uh, institutions the exposure and they can buy it, uh, you know, and, and they can custody it and they don't have to hold the private keys. So, you know, similar to that, being able to buy and, 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 and sell futures on something like the CME where they already have exchanges is great for both of them. So that's my futures conversation. Now on ETH2, uh, I think there were kind of two questions that you were kind of saying. Uh, one was kind of the composability issue, uh, where if, if there's something that's working on ETH1, will it work on ETH2? I think that was part of one of your questions. And Vitalik actually published uh, a great 
uh, post the week of DevCon on that process of ETH2 composability or basically not breaking smart contracts in ETH1 to ETH2. So I do think that there is uh, a roadmap for that to happen. And to be completely honest, it's a little bit above my pay grade when we super dive into, kind of, yeah, it's super complicated. Um, and then there was another part of your ETH 2.0 question, uh, if you could remind me, Christian. I guess my, my, my main question is, is, so right now we have ETH in production and then we have ETH2 coming. We don't, yep. like, it's kind of an unknown what that is going to, in, in practice, mean for ETH1 at, and ETH as an asset. Like, yep. how is that affecting conversations with institutional investors? So, so, so first off, they're not even there yet. You know, like, they don't know the difference between ETH1 and ETH2, and it's, and it's our job to educate them. Um, what I do is I break down the concepts of supply and demand very basically. Uh, I, I explain things like the EIP-1559, which starts basically charging rent and will disintegrate uh, the supply of Ether, first off. Secondly, I explain the notion that of staking, where Ether now becomes a yielding asset, which will also reduce the, the supply uh, that's freely available. And I also have to explain kind of the difference between ether and gas and how gas is denominated in ether, but is kind of a fluctuating variable, which is a little bit more complicated. And, and I mean, to your point, Bitcoin as the storage of value, and there's, you know, supposedly right now a finite uh, amount is a cleaner conversation. Uh, you know, explaining what the internet does in 1985 uh, is a difficult conversation because it can do kind of everything. And we didn't know everything that it could do, but, but explaining the concept of essentially the birth of a new asset class of what I would call crypto or digital commodities, things like a digital gold and Bitcoin, a digital fuel to, to run these uh, digital contracts or digital agreements in Ether, things like digital uh, decentralized file storage and Filecoin, uh, you can paint the concept in the future of rather than the CFTC talking about hogs and heifers and, and oranges and gold and oil, uh, just adding to that story the, the native digital versions of some of those commodities. And I think it's a relatively simple sale. Whenever I talk to uh, any of these people, I talk about kind of the, like the mega trends that are happening in society. Every 15 year old doesn't want a baseball card. They want a Fortnite skin and they're willing to pay for that. You know, what do the 15 year olds care about? You know, we're already starting to see the decentralization of of, of the sharing economy. Everyone's comfortable with Uber and Airbnb. Uh, and, and so like these types of mega trends that are happening with or without this technology that just further enables it are, 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 are kind of uh, arguments that I point to. And, and I just say that this is a way to further improve that. I mean, I, I'm not. I, I know that we're kind of getting to the end of our time here, so I don't want to. I don't want to end on a bad note of me berating. No, but, I, no, it's, uh, it's it great. is an it's interesting pitch. It is. It is an interesting pitch, and I'm. I'm curious to see how it how it plays out in the next five years if Ether actually is an enabling technology or if it's a distraction because 
you know, you can improve these technologies with decentralized money and Ether is trying to recreate the web on, on Ether. I, I think that that's at least from an investment perspective where I have this, the, like the biggest uh, reservations, but um, okay. we'll see. I do, and unless David wants to jump in here, I do want to kind of ask you about what's your take on monetary policy and the monetary aspects of Ether uh, and yeah. how that kind of, you know, how that yeah. kind of goes into your investment thesis. Right. So, so what I would say is that, you know, with respect to Bitcoin and Ether, you obviously have two distinct types of monetary policy where you've got this fixed supply in Bitcoin and, and I'm not convinced that Bitcoin will be fixed at 21 million when we get to, you know, 20 years from now and, and there's basically no more block rewards uh, in, in new Bitcoin. So I'm not necessarily convinced of that. Um, I think that, you know, if, if the 90% drawdown and there was an 85% drawdown in Bitcoin, if, if that taught... Uh, the Ethereum community, anything over the last two years, uh, it is that we really do have to think about the game, theor as the game theoretical aspects of minimal viable issuance and, and things like EIP-1559 that will actually burn Ether. And uh, I think that if this protocol that should be the substrate of trillions of dollars of assets is not worth trillions of dollars, uh, you do have uh, attack vectors. So I think the, it, it, the, they very much understand the fact that the monetary policy has to coincide with the amount of usage and 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 I think that this these are these are problems that are not yet fully solved, but I think the concepts of having you know minimal viable issuance is great. But there's also what I would say a tragedy of the commons. One criticism that I didn't make of the Ethereum Foundation that I'm happy to make now is that everybody should have had vesting. You have a bunch of people that built out a protocol. Uh, the initial issuance of Ether was about $62 million. There was $12 million issued additionally for, let's say, the original founders of Ethereum and, and, uh, and, and let's say, friends that, that also helped. I know, I, I know there was a guy that got meetups, that did meetups, that got something like 80,000 Ether, and he sold it all at two bucks. So he's probably pissed off at that. Uh, but, 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 but uh, you know, the, the, you know, I, I would say that there are founders of Ethereum that stopped working on Ethereum less than a year later and uh, are building competing protocols or just hanging out. I can name several. <laughs> and, 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 and the tragedy here is that there are, you know, like Danny Ryan, who's the, the leader of E2.0, um, he didn't get, you know, quote unquote, you know, the founder's issuance of, of Ether at, you know, at 30 cents or a dollar. Uh, and he's here busting his tail to deliver this. So there, there does have to be some type of uh, allocation or thought uh, put forth to continuing to build out the protocol. And I don't know if that issuance should be through... 
you know, block rewards or, or validation if, if it should be baked into the protocol. And, and, and I, I wouldn't advise that. But, uh, but I do think that we do have to start thinking about the tragedy of the commons where there are lots of people adding value now that weren't part of that $12 million or 12 million ether allocation five years ago. And there are a bunch of people that were allocated that money five years ago that stopped working, you know, four, four years and 364 days later. And I'm just being you real. Are, like I'm, I'm, I'm You are pointing out a real issue with, uh, with this idea of like a, a kind of like a pre-mine um, or just, you know, doling out of, of this stuff kind of beforehand. And I think this issue emerged also with ICOs and stuff like that. It just makes for bad incentives. So I, I, I wouldn't blanket that it makes for bad incentives. And I think that, you know, relatively speaking, you know, uh, you know, Ethereum built by Vitalik Buterin and he's got, you know, less than half a percent of it now uh, of, of the total amount. Uh, there has to be incentive for the for for these people to build these protocols and work uh, uh, their whole lives, um, and I and I don't think and and it really blanketing saying you know a pre mine is bad I I don't think is fair I think you, you've got to dive into you know what what are the numbers of of the pre mine you know maybe seventy five percent of it pre mined yes and I think that you know the the the, the invisible hand of economics will will show that people won't use it. You know, you've seen Hedera's price go through the floor. You've seen mm -hmm. Algorand's price go through the floor. And and I'd argue that those, you know, you know, versus the, you know, the I think it was like a 17% pre-mine was Ethereum versus, you know, these that are, you know, over 50, and you've got a, a large percentage that are owned by VCs. Uh, I, I think you get much more into the notion of, of, of these next generation or not next generations, but these, you know, ETH killers, quote unquote, uh, being treated like securities and not having the game theoretical incentives uh, that, that Ethereum does have. So I kind of want to close this out with a lightning round of sorts. Uh, on, in January of this year, you wrote an article called uh, Welcome to the Fourth Industrial Revolution, 19 Predictions for 2019. And we still have two plus months left in 2019. So we're getting close to the end of it. So I kind of want to do run through these, not all 19 of them, but just the ones I think are, are most relevant and get sure. an answer from you. Either, yes, we've achieved it. No, we haven't achieved it, but it's still coming. Or I was wrong. Are you ready? Cool. Shoot. Okay. Uh, beginning in, in 2019, the fourth industrial revolution will move exponentially faster than preceding revolutions. The fourth industrial revolution being the blockchain revolution. Uh, is this happening? Do we know that it's happening? Uh, are you still waiting for it? Uh, or are you wrong? So I would say that we are seeing things move faster. Uh, and But what I would say is that the prolonged bear market has not it has not been a help helper to this because what i would say you know companies are i would say more risk off than risk on uh and and whether you know you could hire an extra researcher or hire an extra engineer uh i think that the prolonged bear market has not uh lent that type of additional risk so i i i'd say i was partially wrong Okay, two, the end of token fever will lead to higher quality tokens. 100% correct. Nice. I, I, I think, I, I, right. I think, 
yeah, I, and I think that we're starting to see not even to, in addition to that, I mean, I think that there is, con you know, the conversation about having security tokens versus consumer utility tokens still needs to get baked out because tokens can rep represent anything. Uh, we, you know, we have tokens that represent bottles of milk where uh, if, if literally, if, and, and this is the cool thing about supply chains where, you know, if it's in a refrigerated truck uh, and the temperature goes up, uh, it'll ping and, and basically say this milk's gone bad. And not every token is, uh, or you can have like an electron on a solar panel uh, or, you know, fiat, not all electrons or sorry, not all tokens are securities. And I think that we've got to really get that through to the regulatory bodies. Um, but we're, we've also seen the sophistication of tokens um, embedding more complex business logic. And we're going to continue to see that. Three, legacy market volatility will migrate investors to digital assets. Right, not yet, or wrong? So I would say not yet. And the other piece that I would add to that is, you know, there's been a huge narrative that, you know, these provably scarce uh, protocols, and I'm just going to indulge me, Christian, and lump Bitcoin and, and Ether together, that they would be, quote unquote, kind of risk off, like safe havens. Um, but they haven't been, uh, you know, it, it, you know, I, I remember when in 2016, uh, Draghi, who was then commissioner of the European Central Bank, basically started quantitative easing. And so basically interest rates went down and uh, supply of capital went up of the euro and Bitcoin went up. Uh, and, and but this year, we haven't seen that correlation as, as much. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's much more of risk off, risk off. Five, the institutional herd arrives slowly but surely. Right, not yet, or wrong? Uh, right, and it's slowly but surely. Uh, you know, I think Fidelity was a big mover. We've got uh, CME continuing to put out uh, financial products. Uh, Nomura has a custody solution. Uh, JP Morgan continues to build things. EY continues to build things. Goldman Sachs is jealous of JP Morgan and now has uh, built up a huge blockchain team. Then they're yet to release all the information. But every Fortune 500 has a team that used to be, you know, the recent college grad nerd that was getting paid 50 grand that was in, you know, the, the R&D. Now it's an actual team that have to prove the concepts and, and, and really explain what this means to their business. And that's not just finance. You're seeing ExxonMobil, Chevron, Shell in oil and gas. You're seeing all the insurers. You're seeing it in healthcare. And I would just say the enterprise, you know, Fortune, 5, Fortune 1000 uh, has arrived. And, wow. and, and, and they're building things. And I think that it, it, takes, it takes two, three years to actually get something through risk committees, through compliance. Uh, and, 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 that, and that's where we're at, which is a great place to be. Man, I wish I could comment on that, but let's keep going. <laughs> Six, not a killer dap, but a killer, killer ecosystem will cause the Lego effect to stack. Right, wrong, or not yet? I, I, I firmly believe that the ecosystems uh, will make this. And, and right now it's an engineer's, it's an engineer's world. Uh, and 
what I will say to this is that I'll be very curious to see what happens when uh, the virtual machine ver uh, moves towards WebAssembly mm -hmm. because uh, then now you kind of open up, you know, clunky solidity to, to languages that, that millions of developers are used to. But to converse that, you're seeing uh, other, you know, other blockchains use WebAssembly as well. So there could be kind of transportability. Uh, if, you know, Ether's not cutting it, you could see something maybe on Polkadot because they also have WebAssembly and people are used to writing the code in WebAssembly rather than something proprietary like Solidity to Ethereum. Okay, last question I want to pull out of this article. The evolution of Consensus 2.0 will continue to blow people's minds. Right, wrong, not yet. I think right, but I think that uh, it's a, a, a lot of great things are happening that are yet to be announced. So I think that the ship is going in the right direction. Um, I think that Joe Lubin literally should be credited with catalyzing an industry um, and is, you know, is, is a personal hero of mine. Uh, but I think there was a lot of stuff that had to be cleaned up. I think, you know, if there was anything that uh, consensus that, that we might have done wrong was we probably timed the crescendo where we started hiring lots of people without probably all the right infrastructure, thinking that things like scalability probably could have been solved last summer. And, and, and obviously that got delayed. And, and, and so the crescendo didn't occur at the right time. So I think that uh, they're extremely focused. Uh, some of the smartest people on earth, much smarter than me. Um, and, and, and they're only going to put out continuous, really thoughtful, uh, you know, not, and, and I would say it's all layers of the stack. It's the protocol layer, you know, what they just contributed to the Linux Foundation and Hyperledger Besu, which is a Apache 2 permissioned and permissionless version of Ethereum. Uh, the tooling layer, things like Truffle, things like MetaMask, things like Infura, uh, the educational layer, the standards layer, and the app layer. So, so I really think that th th there's a debt of gratitude owed to consensus for the work that they really are doing. And, 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 and it's interesting because, you know, a lot of that stuff doesn't necessarily accrue to the enterprise value of consensus. Uh, it may accrue to the value of the token of Ether, uh, and but but uh, I think that it was a necessary uh, it was necessary work to do in order to 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 really build this ecosystem. Okay, so to wrap this up, just two quick questions. Yeah, since we're coming down to the end of the year, are you going to write another uh, article about predicting any predictions for 2020? And if you are, do you have any you could share with us? I do think that uh, I will write another article, uh, even though what it does is it ends up ruining my holidays and because I've, you know, it's Christmas and New Year's and I got to write this stupid article. But, uh, but, but I think the one that I will, which, which I, I'll say is a little bit bearish, uh, is that I think that uh, we're going to start seeing regulatory actions against DeFi. So a lot of like what we saw against tokens or ICOs, uh, we're going to start seeing that against uh, live and I would say relatively successful decentralized finance applications that haven't done the things like, like I mentioned, like, 
you know, if, if you're issuing loans and you don't have a lending license, uh, you know, in the 50 states that you're issuing the loans, that's a problem. So, so I think that'll be one that, that I'll, I'll be a little bearish and trust me on. Very interesting. I'm looking forward to reading that article. Uh, and then one final, very quick question. You have $1,000. How do you allocate it among all crypto assets? So including tokens on Ethereum and base layer protocols. So I'm, I'm bearish on application layer tokens. Uh, I would say I, I own less than, you know, uh, less than 3% of, of bearish MKR and rep. Yeah. Yeah. It's just, it's too early. It's just, too, it's just too early. Like, I, 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 and, and so. Andrew, you agreed with me so much. <laughs> I, I, I would say, you know, and, and what I would say is in the short term, I think you're going to get more pop out of Bitcoin than Ether. Um, so, it, you know, long term, I'd be, you know, if it was a 10 year horizon, I would be 90 Ether, five Bitcoin and five, you know, let's play with things that I think are fun, like Maker. Uh, in the 12 months, I would probably be 65% Ether because at any moment it could just run away and I think it's completely undervalued. And 30... Oh, speak and chain launch. Yeah, 30% yeah, 30 Bitcoin and 5% and uh, application layer tokens. Cool. All right. Andrew, thank you so much for your time. Thanks for coming on POV Crypto. This was a great discussion. Uh, if people want to uh, read more of your content, listen to more of you, where can they find you on the Twitter sphere and where can they find your content? Sure. Uh, it's, I gotta just remember because I changed it from Consensus Andrew to Dharma Andrew, but I don't remember my exact name. No, it's Andrew Dharma, right? Uh, yeah, it's at Andrew Dharma Cap. Uh, and and uh, you can find more about us at dharma.capital. And there's no H in there. Digital Asset Risk Management Advisors, dharma.capital. Yeah, unaffiliated with Dharma Lending. Correct, because I think that DeFi lenders are going to get in trouble. <laughs> Oh boy. All right, guys, you can follow the podcast at POV Crypto Pod. You can follow me at Trustless State, both on Twitter and on Medium. Christian. Andrew, thanks so much for coming on and thanks for playing ball. This is a fun episode. Uh, you can find me at CK underscore snarks. You guys, five star reviews, get us to 100 reviews, please. If you do, maybe we'll send you some Bitcoin or Ether. We got we to gotta figure something out, but we got to get to 100. We got to get to 100 reviews. I think we deserve it. No, Nowhere else do you get a Bitcoiner and Andrew Keys arguing on a podcast. It just doesn't happen other than POV Crypto. So give us the reviews, baby. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, guys. That was super fun. It's true.